leads uh, this uh, on Sunday mornings and uh, had an emergency, and uh, I'm just really thankful that we're in a place where on such short notice, Sean can draw upon people like Rob and the rest of them to just go ahead and lead seamlessly and not, um, not even notice that there's a difference, so we really appreciate that. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Redemption Arcadia. My name is Frank. I'm the teaching pastor here. So on most Sunday mornings, I'm the guy that gets up at this point uh, during the service. And if you're new to Redemption, uh, I just want to let you know that Redemption is actually one church that is expressed in a multiple of congregations. We have congregations uh, in a number of different places, and we are the Arcadia expression of uh, Redemption. So welcome. Uh, We are glad that you are here this morning. Uh, We are in the ninth week of a sermon series on the book of 1 Peter. What we like to do for the most part at Redemption is we like to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and that's what we've been doing uh, for the last several weeks in this book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. It's towards the end of the uh, New Testament, so if you want to grab your Bibles or your Bible apps and and turn there or click there, whatever it's it's going to be, we're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. And First uh, Peter is, is a wonderful book. Uh, it, is, it is also, though, a complex book, and sometimes uh, people shy away from it because it can be so difficult to understand, and there's uh, some passages in it that are considered controversial, and there are some passages in it uh, that are considered too hard to even try to study and understand. Yet, I would argue that it's one of the richest and deepest texts that you're going to find in Scripture uh, and, and to get into it and wrestle with it is an absolutely wonderful thing. Uh, Dan McCartney, who uh, wrote the book, Why Does It Have to Hurt? He's not talking about the, reading the letter of First Peter with the title of that book, but he's actually, uh, it's a book on suffering and Christian suffering. And First Peter is a book about Christian suffering for much of it, which we're going to start getting into next week. And for the rest of the series, we're going to talk about Christian suffering But he says this about the whole of 1 Peter. He says, while 1 Peter is a very complex book, it never stops yielding insights to those willing to study it. So if you're willing to jump into 1 Peter and study it and wrestle with it, you find that um, it it is really an enriching experience and you can learn a lot from it. Uh, You can learn a lot about our salvation in Christ, but also how that is going to affect the way we live. So both sides of that. Uh, one of the things that I like to do with a, with a series like this, uh, because we live in such a transient culture and because um, uh, people are not necessarily here every single Sunday, uh, and because even if you are here every Sunday, it's been an entire week since you were here, and so uh, the likelihood of you remembering everything about what has happened in previous weeks is very small, I like to review what we've been through in First Peter, kind of give you the narrative flow uh, of what he has said so far uh, in, the, 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 um, in the letter, um, speaking of people not being here last week, my wife wasn't here last week, and I don't know if that was a strategic move on her part to go out of town last week when we talked about wives submitting themselves to their own husbands, or if it just, if God was working in her life or in my life, I don't know, but um, she wasn't here last week, she was here this morning to hear about how husbands are supposed to serve and minister to their wives, so she was here for that one. Uh, If any of you know how to find the podcasts uh, of the Arcadia Sermons on the website, I would appreciate it if you could go there and download last week's sermon, put it on a CD, and give it to my wife. That would be very helpful to me because I don't know how to do that. Anyway, Peter starts off, I digress, Peter starts off this, this letter by saying, thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again. 
which is that, that idea of being born again is the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the good news is that because of who we are, because by nature you and I do not follow God, we are actually rebellious of who God is and would rather not follow him, and therefore we sin, we miss the mark, we do not do uh, what we really should. If you've noticed the world around us is kind of messed up, that's because uh, we struggle with this idea of following God. Uh, well, because of that, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our redemption, to be our savior, to be our deliverer from the fact that we have sinned, we have rebelled against God, and the consequence of that is that we are, we are not in relationship with God. We are not reconciled to him. But Jesus came and died on the cross, which gives us this forgiveness of our sins, and therefore we are reconciled to him. And so Peter is saying, thanks be to God that he did that for us, that he caused us to be born again. We're a new creation now because Christ is living in us. We are no longer following the passions of our flesh, but we're following the call of Christ in our lives. But it's not just sin that God has saved us and delivered us from. It's also this idea that we are now free in Christ to be the people that God has called us and purposed us to be. We live in a time, I have noticed where, and I experience this in my own life, where freedom is a big deal to us. Freedom is, is really important to us. If there's one thing that we all want, it's, it's to be able to be free. The reality of freedom, though, is, is that... Uh, it, it, a lot of people think that if they can throw off the shackles of God, that they are living in freedom. That was me for 27 years, the first 27 years of my life. I was sure that uh, living apart from God was me expressing my freedom. But what I discovered was that, in fact, I was in slavery to the idols that were in my life. Nobody is ever truly free. We all have priorities in our life that we're living our life for, and therefore we are subject to them. We are enslaved to them. And so when I wasn't uh, uh, in Christ, when I was not a Christian, I was actually enslaved to the idols that were in my life. So whatever it might have been, and, and I'll say now in generally, if you want to know what my idols were, you can come and ask me personally. You can do that for a $4.50 latte. But generally speaking, what we submit ourselves to, the idols in our life, things like sex, our career, power, um, money, the, the, the uh, uh, obtaining of money, uh, substance abuse, uh, whatever those things are that, that we are trying to exp uh, say that we're expressing our freedom, we're actually enslaved to those things as idols in our lives. We're worshiping counterfeit gods. But when we come to Christ, now we have the freedom to be who call it, God has truly called us and purposed us to be. So true freedom is actually in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying that's, that's a good thing and we should praise God for doing that for us. And as a result of being in Christ, we are also called to live holy. Now I've talked a lot about this too in, in, in recent weeks. This idea of holiness, this word holy, really scares us because we think right, out, right away we're called to be perfect. And that is a part of it, but we also know that there's no way we can be perfect because we're all flawed. We all, we all fall short. Everybody knows that nobody's perfect. So that scares us. But in Christ, we do have perfection before God. But it's more than just being called to be perfect. It's also this idea that we are going to live in a set-apart or different way. 
So when Peter uses the word, yes, he's calling us to be perfect, and we access the power of the gospel in order to work on trying to do that. That's the process of sanctification. We never actually obtain it perfectly, but we are seen as perfect by God because we're in Christ. But, but really, the other way that, that we are to be holy is in this way that we are different from the way we used to be before we knew Jesus. We are no longer submitting ourselves to the passion of our flesh, to our, to our earthly desires. Instead, now we are living by the Holy Spirit in us. And that's how we are holy. We are set apart. And as a result, we also need to live in a faith community. Peter calls us to, to the church. We need to be in a local church. We need each other. And the reason we need each other is because we're going to encourage each other and love one another and be, and be able to sharpen one another and call each other to the purposes that God has for us. And specifically, the, the love ethic in the church is different than any other ethic that you're going to find in any other culture anywhere else. And that ethic is one of both affectionate and unconditional love. We're called to love each other affectionately with great affection because we look at each other and we recognize that we're looking at somebody who is created in the image of God. And so we have affection for each other. But we're also, the other side of that coin is that we're called to love each other unconditionally. We recognize that even though we are created in the image of God, we're also flawed and fallen and we're going to mess up. And so we're not going to always do everything that everybody around us wants us to do. And so we have to also love each other unconditionally. That is a high call in the church, in the faith community, to love each other affectionately and unconditionally. But that's the ethic that we're called to live by. And then Peter grinds away on this issue of how we're exiles, that <clears throat> as Christians now, uh, we feel a little bit displaced when we go out into the marketplace and into the world that doesn't believe the same things uh, that we do. In Peter's case, they are exiles uh, because they are actually sojourners on earth and they are in the midst of the Roman Empire. And we, are, we too are in the midst of a, of a type of empire here. It's just simply not the empire of Christ when we go out into the marketplace. And so we, we feel a little bit disassociated or disenfranchised from the rest of, of the world. Augustine, who was a 4th century church father, says it this way, and I think this is really helpful. As Christians, we belong to both the city of God and the city of man, which means, of course, that there is going to be tension in our lives. When, when you're called to live in Christ and then you go out into a world that doesn't have that same calling or understanding, that's going to create tension. And so one of the great misunderstandings of the Christian faith, one of the great misunderstandings of coming to Christ is that if I come to Christ and become a Christian and become a, a good little church-going person, that means that the rest of my life is going to be easy and problem-free problem and comfortable. And those of us that have been walking with Christ for a while know that that couldn't be further from the truth. That in fact coming to Christ is going to present new problems for us and there's going to be tension as well as the fact that we're going to still have to deal with the old problems as well. You know, Jesus said in this world you're going to have trouble but take heart because I have overcome the world. The point is, is that as we meet these tensions we know that we have Jesus with us. Uh, Rich Mao says it this way in his book Uncommon Decency. He says, all Christians have, in a sense, a dual citizenship. We may have legal or earthly citizenship in the United States or Nigeria or Peru or Thailand, but we are also bound together 
into a transnational, multi-ethnic community of people whose supreme allegiance is to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This allegiance gives us our primary national identity. That would be national without borders. It gives us our primary national identity. In the deepest sense, it defines who we are. So we're exiles, and as a result, called into the faith community. And so Peter would say that we are the new temple of God called to make spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ, his son. So we are to make spiritual sacrifices, not only as a community, as a, as a faith community, going out into our community and serving the community, but individually we also make spiritual sacrifices as well. And then he gets to chapter 2, verse 12, which is the thesis statement for the little mini-series that we've been doing these last four weeks that we wrap up today, which I would call Be Subject or Subject Yourselves To. That's what we've been talking about these last uh, three weeks. And here's what he says in chapter 2 of uh, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, in other words, those who don't believe the way you do, those who aren't Christians, keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, evil and they will speak against us as evildoers, but when they speak against us, they may see our good deeds and glorify God. I, I talked a little bit about last week about Larry Wright. And one of his favorite sayings was, listen, the reason we have to conduct ourselves with honor among people who do not yet know Jesus Christ, in other words, out in the marketplace of ideas, is because you might be the only Bible that that person ever reads. And so if they look at your life and they see that your life is different, that it's set apart, that it's holy, that it's changed as a result of your relationship with Jesus Christ, they won't look at you and honor you, but they'll look at the change that was caused in you. They'll know it was Jesus and they'll honor God as a result. And God will use that as a tool to draw people unto him. That's the whole point. And so then he goes into these passages that we've been studying these last four weeks where we are to subject ourselves to all of these various authorities that frankly we don't always like subjecting ourselves to, but that's the point. This is part of offering spiritual sacrifices unto God that are pleasing to him. And so three weeks ago we talked about subjecting ourselves to the governing authorities. Two weeks ago Josh talked about subjecting ourselves to our bosses and supervisors and employees, uh, employers. Uh, meaning uh, what I would call the marketplace authorities in our lives. Last week, we talked about the roles of wives, that they are to subject themselves to their own husband. And the reason for that is, is one of the reasons is that it will help your husband to see and understand the gospel, which is a really good thing. They'll recognize Christ in you, and that will hopefully draw them closer to God. But then Peter also goes on and talks about how <clears throat> wives, women, all women... Your genuine beauty is not in your outward appearance, in the way that you fix yourselves up on the outside, although it's okay to do that and look nice, but that's not where your genuine beauty lies, but rather your genuine beauty lies in the inner self that is being constructed by the fact that Christ is living in you now, the Holy Spirit within you. So God calls you to recognize that your beauty is actually inside out. That your real beauty, your eternal beauty, your lasting beauty is, is on the inside. And, and Peter says, this is how you're to adorn yourself. And that word translated adorn literally means this is how you're to order your life or prioritize your life. Don't prioritize it 
on how you look on the outside, but prioritize it based on the work that God is doing on the inside, your hidden person, the, the, the place where your genuine beauty resides. And Peter says, in, in God's sight, this is precious. And so now today, it's the men's turn. It's the role of husbands. And again, just like last week, this is not a sermon just for married men, although primarily, I will be speaking to married men this morning. But last week, I spoke primarily to, to, to the married women, but at the same time, uh, the men heard a lot of stuff that they needed to hear, and single people heard a lot of stuff that they needed to hear. And so the same thing is going to happen this week. Primarily talking to the men here, especially husbands, but everybody needs to hear this. And the reason is because it's biblical material and the Bible is for everyone at every moment. And then the one thing I want to get to, I want to mention before we get back to the verse is this. Um, I will say that a number of people have said this and I've read about this as well. Some people get a little miffed that there's only one verse addressed to the husbands in this passage, and there were six verses addressed to the wives. And, and they get a little upset about that and wonder what that's all about. I, I want to assure you this has nothing to do with Peter's view of women versus men. In fact, what we're going to see in this one verse is that the message Peter has for men is just as forceful as it was last week for the women it just takes fewer words to make the point, which frankly I think is good news because as we all know, men have shorter attention spans than women do. So this is going to be very helpful to us today. So let me reread the verse that Josh read for us, <clears throat> and then we're going to unpack it. He writes, likewise, so there's that word again, so we're going to talk about that again. Likewise, wives be subject to, I'm sorry, man. I see that word likewise and I just go, anyway, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. We need to understand what understanding way means. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now that term weaker vessel is one we're going to skip right over and not even talk about because nobody cares about that and is it, nobody's really interested in that. So we won't spend any time at all on that. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered an interesting almost random statement we're going to get to all of that so here's the big idea for today this is the big idea husbands you need to know your wives and you need to honor your wives you need to know your wives and you need to honor your wives so he starts by saying likewise husbands same word as last week it means in the same way in other words the path of righteous obedient living is no different between husbands and wives it's no different between men and women and I, let me just say, I, th I find it so interesting how our culture constantly wants the sexes bickering with each other, the sexes jealous of each other, and the sexes concerned about who's getting uh, the, the advantages in, in terms of justice in the public sphere and who's getting the short end of the justice stick in the public sphere. Culture wants us at odds, but the Bible is very clear about this. Our salvation, our sanctification, our redemption, and our restoration is all the same in Christ Jesus. There is no discrimination on this. And so likewise, in the same way, husbands, you have a role. And you have it for the same two reasons that we talked about for wives last week. Number one, because it's what God calls you to. It's because of what he wants. It's his will for your life. And then number two, there's a practical benefit, a practical reason for this, which is, well, we'll get to it in more depth in a minute, but here's a preview. It's two things. Number one, wives desperately need their husbands to know them 
and to treat them with knowledge and honor. That's number one, and there, there is a practical benefit to that. And number two, if husbands don't do what they're called to do, their prayers and the prayers of their wives are going to be hindered. And I would argue it's not a good thing if your prayers get hindered, okay? So Peter starts by saying, husbands, you're to live with your wives, be married to your wife in an understanding way. And let me just say, the English translation to the Greek is, is sometimes not forceful enough and not clear enough. And in this verse, it's, it, th we have a number of these problems in this verse alone. And it starts with this word right here, in an understanding way. That word understanding is actually the Greek word gnosin. And literally, gnosin means knowledge. So the verse should say, live with your wife in knowledge. Now, if you're a smart guy, you'd say, okay, I have to live with her in knowledge. Knowledge of what? What does that mean? Well, it's actually two things. First of all, you're to have knowledge of God's purposes and principles for marriage. And this is so that you can be a truly godly husband. So in other words, here you go, guys. You need to be studying the scriptures. You need to be coming to church. And you need to be getting into relationships with other godly guys who can help you with godly wisdom. And I know that the word relationship is so scary to some of you men. But if you're really as tough as you think you are, you can handle a few relationships for crying out loud. So I would challenge you to do that. So the second thing that you're to know her, uh, to have knowledge, is that you're to have knowledge of who your wife is. You're to have knowledge of what makes her tick. In other words, guys, we need to know more about our wives than just how she looks. One commentator says this, specifically, a husband needs to have knowledge of his wife's desires, goals, and frustrations. A husband needs to have knowledge of his wife's desires, goals, and frustrations. And I admit, I find irony in that statement because I know for a fact through marriage counseling that one of the great frustrations of wives is that their husbands don't know their desires and goals. And so it's kind of a circular thing here. Now, guys, the fact that you are called to know your wife intimately, and, and I, I know, this, guys, again, you hear that word intimately, and immediately you think, a lot of you think sexually. That's a given, and I've got biblical texts for that, too, and we can study those over a latte as well if you want. But when it says intimately here, when we say that you need to know your wives intimately, what we mean is emotionally and intellectually. And if you're going to know your wife emotionally and intellectually, I'm getting some really interesting looks from the guys right now. If you're going to know your, your wife emotionally and intellectually, this demands that, it, that it's going to take time and talking. Time and talking. There's a lot of laughter going on down here right now. By the way, it's going to take one more thing besides time and talking. It's also going to take listening. No! <laughs> Not listening. Yes, listening. In fact, guys, here's just a little slice of this heaven that I'm going to talk to you about today. It, it, it means figuring out the fact that men and women communicate and listen differently. Men and women communicate and listen very differently. So guys, here you go. You're going to have to get used to the idea that when you listen to your wife, you are going to have to close your computer, put your phone down, turn off the TV, that it's going to take more than 2 minutes and 21 seconds, and that it's not always an opportunity to demonstrate your stellar problem-solving skills. Because believe it or not, your wife 
is smart enough to figure out how to solve a majority of the problems on her own, but what she's looking for is somebody to unpack that with, somebody to use as a sounding board, somebody to kind of think out loud with, somebody to kind of detox with, somebody to kind of just let it all out. She's looking to connect with you in a way that you don't understand because she likes to do it through talking. That's how, that's, that's how she loves, okay? And so you need to learn how to listen without interrupting and offering your solution for the problems that you perceive that she has. But you know that that's the way a lot of us listen to our wives. We sit down with her, and within two minutes, we perceive the problem, and we have a three-point plan already designed for solving her problem, which we then try to explain to our wives, and then we look for the clicker. That's not what she's looking for. She wants you to listen and say, yes, uh-huh, and listen good. She really wants you to be able to do this with her. She wants this time. So you need to listen, like, with your whole body. You need to turn towards her. Guys are shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder people. Women are face-to-face -face people. Guys, we need to be face-to-face -face with our wives. And we need to listen with empathy. In other words, we have to think about what it's like for her to be in the situation that she's in. And you know what? You can't do that in 2 minutes and 21 seconds. So guys, you and I need to learn and to practice focus. And here's what I love about focus for guys. I know that guys know how to focus. I know that for a fact. Have you ever seen them around an athletic event? They're focused. Have you ever seen them around a bowl of dip? They are focused, so they know how to focus. You just need to take those principles and apply them to your wife. So you can do this. You need to learn how to ask her questions. And you need to know this as well. She's going to give you more details than you need. But this isn't about what you need. It's about what she needs. You also need to make eye contact with her. You need to occasionally touch her hand or her arm in a non-sexual way. It's called NST, guys, non-sexual touching. I know you think that those words don't belong in the same sentence. Sorry. But this is what she's looking for. These, these, are, these are ways that she connects, ways that she feels understood, ways that she knows that you are getting to know her. Guys, research shows that, that thing, here you go, things like this. Men tend to use words as weapons while women tend to use words to build relationships. Men tend to use words to gain respect, while women tend to, tend to use words to be liked and to build bridges. And guys, this is just one little example of what you need to do when you are entering into this world of gnosin. You're called to do this as a godly husband. Check this out. Wayne Grudem writes this in his commentary. A husband who lives according to such knowledge, such gnosin, will greatly enrich his marriage relationship... Yet, such knowledge can only be gained through regular study of God's Word and regular, unhurried times of private fellowship together with his wife. So, my brothers, gnosin your wives. I think we ought to make a t-shirt that says that, gnosin your wife. I think that would be awesome. It would be a good conversation starter. Next thing Peter says is that husbands are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. There are three words here that we clearly need to define and understand before this verse is going to make any sense to us. And that first word would be the word woman. That, the, the, the word there is not the common Greek word, the everyday Greek word for woman. 
It is a much rarer word that literally means the feminine one. So the point here is that we're going to be uh, talking about women in their nature as feminine beings in this part of the verse. Second, the word translated honor needs to be understood. Many people tend to equate honor with respect. They treat them as synonyms. The problem is, is that they're not synonyms. They are not the same thing. Honor goes much further than respect. Respect means that you generally do something out of a sense of obligation or duty, but not because of love. Honor, however, means that you are willingly and enthusiastically elevating the person that you love and that you're in relationship with. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That's a great verse for marriage, I will tell you. If both spouses would behave that way, it would be wonderful. And the word here for honor literally means treat her as precious. So what does precious mean? It means unique, prized, treasured, priceless. So that's honor. Then this third term we need to look at is, is what is this weaker vessel thing about? I'm going to spend some time here, my brothers and sisters. First of all, the word vessel is really just a colloquialism. I have trouble saying that word, but I like to say it. it it's, it's, it's common vernacular for a type of container. And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talks about how we're vessels of clay. So it's, it's really just common vernacular for something that is a, a, a container. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there. Instead, we, we need to unpack this word weaker. In the Greek, this word that we translate as weaker literally means weaker. So here we go. Now, Peter is not terribly specific in describing in what way the feminine one is weaker, and so we have to start asking some questions. What does he mean when he says the feminine one is weaker? Is she weaker spiritually? No. Cannot make a biblical case for that. Women are, <clears throat> excuse me, women are called, gifted, they're prayerful, they're saved, they're sensitive, and they can study scripture. Galatians 3, in which Paul clearly talks about our standing before Christ and not in terms of our roles. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or sons and daughters of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither uh, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's not weaker spiritually. Is it intellectually? Are women weaker intellectually? Again, no. You have to understand that that there is no biblical case that can be made for that. And furthermore, it doesn't even fit the context of what Peter's talking about. It would make no sense if that's what he meant. So is it morally? Are women weaker morally? Again, no. The curse of sin has hit the sexes equally. There is no, uh, there is no such thing as bias or affirmative action that's needed in the case of the nature of sin between men and women. It's equal. And so what is it? If it's not those things, what is it? It's actually two areas. First of all, physically. Generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. The physiological and biological reality of this is difficult, if, if not impossible, to disprove. And so, in many situations, women legitimately need protection and honor for that very reason. They're weaker physically. And here's the second reason, though, Peter says that women are weakly, weaker, and, 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 and really, context really drives this. Socially, the woman was weaker. 
got to remember in their cultural context, in the Greco-Roman and, and also in the Jewish first century, women were not considered equals with men on any level. At best, women were second-class citizens. Even the women that had money and had businesses, the, the few that there were, even they were looked down on with, uh, with disdain, and they were mistreated and oppressed as a matter of normal, acceptable, standard operating procedure in that culture. So what Peter says here is actually fairly revolutionary given his context. Is context. Here's what Peter's saying. Because women face greater challenges in their context and are already weaker physically, the godly first century husband defies culture. He defies the culture and he lives with his wife in knowledge of her needs, understanding and empathy of her ways, and honoring and protecting her as a full and co-equal heir to the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Their roles are different, and they should be. The husband and wife, the male and female roles are different, and they should be. Jackie and I understand that we have different roles in our marriage, and they don't always fit the cultural context that we live in. But here's the deal. Jackie and I do not serve our culture. We serve Jesus. And so we seek to do that. And so Peter is saying then, as now, that the husband and wife roles may be different, but they are equals as heirs before Christ. And therefore should not only be given respect, but honor and protection. And this was actually culturally revolutionary in Peter's time. So that was Peter's time. Some of you are going, all right, well, what does it mean today, though? Is there a clear application for today? Because things are so different today. Well, again, I would argue that generally speaking, women are at a disadvantage today socially. Now, I know, I know. We have legislated, we have talk showed and we have academic this issue to death and we're now supposed to be enlightened and progressive and behave like women are on a totally level playing field socially in the 21st century right but if that's true why do we still need legislation title nine talk shows research and academia to come to the rescue of women why would that be true fact is is it's still challenging for women today their, their desire for connectivity and relationship in a way that most men don't really understand or resonate with, yeah, that makes it tougher on women. The fact that physically men can still intimidate women makes it challenging for women in the, in the public sphere. And just the mountain of research that clearly shows, once again, that men and women communicate very differently and that the male paradigm for communication dominates the public sphere, once again, disadvantage women. So Peter's call to the godly man is just as important today as it was then. You need to know her, you need to understand her, you need to honor her, and you need to protect her. One commentator writes this, Christian men... Whatever power, advantage, or authority you have, you are not to misuse it. Rather, you are to actively use what power, advantage, and authority you do have in order to bestow honor on your wife. By the way, let me just say, I think it's a tragedy that the church has lost the moral high ground in the issue of treating each other with honor. And I'm not just talking about uh, uh, um, men treating women with honor, but women treating men with honor as well. Isn't it time that maybe the church reclaim this moral high ground in this area? I mean, we have Jesus for crying out loud. And we don't seem to have the, the high ground in this area. 
Yes, Pastor Frank, we should reclaim that moral ground. But how? How do we do that? We could start by taking God seriously in marriage. We really could. Wives, be subject to your husbands and find your primary beauty in your inner person. Husbands, honor your wife and know her. I think the reason the church has lost the moral high ground in this area is because we've been too busy succumbing to the culture's definition of love, beauty, and marriage and to their idea of how all of those things are supposed to be manifested, which is wrong. We've lost ground because we've lost sight of the centrality of Christ in the gospel in how we live. And you know what? Non-Christians, even atheists, know this. There's a, a, an atheist philosopher and author named A.C. Grayling. He writes this. Listen to what he says. People say, what's wrong with moderate religion? Those nice folks who go to church on Sundays and take part in their neighborhoods. And there's the problem. Moderate religion. Moderate religion is religion where people do a little bit of cherry-picking. They take the best bits of the religion, but some of the more embarrassing or difficult bits they leave behind. I find very few Christians actually live the New Testament morality. At the other other end of the scale, however, are those who take their religion extremely seriously. We call them extremists. Yet extremists are the most honest of the people who have a religious view because they commit themselves to what their texts teach. Redemption Arcadia, we need to call ourselves constantly back to the gospel. We need to call ourselves back to the good news because that's where we have the power to be able to live this way. That's what we should be living in, by, and for. And here's what that means. That means that our identity is going to be in Christ, that our treasure is going to be Christ, that our hope is Christ, that our wisdom comes from Christ, That when we make decisions, we prioritize the teaching of Christ and try to have the mind of Christ. Then we need to remember that the most important story in our lives is actually the story of Jesus Christ and that the righteousness we seek and desire should be Christ's and our forgiveness is from Christ. And so husbands, the reason we do our part according to Peter in verse 7 is because wives are heirs with us. I love it when we can use the book of 1 Peter to explain and validate 1 Peter. This idea of being heirs is talked about in the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance. That's heir talk there into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept and guarded and protected in heaven for you. So that word inheritance talks about how we are co-heirs, men and women, wives and husbands, with, uh, with everybody in Christ. So then the verse finally ends. Peter adds one more piece to the puzzle. He says, husbands, you need to do this so that your prayers will not be hindered. So here you go, two ways that we can hinder our prayers. First of all, if a husband and wife have antipathy or indifference or hostility between the two of them, do you think they're going to have a really easy time getting together to pray with each other? The answer to that is no. And in that respect, when the husband and the wife are not living according to what God calls us to in the marriage, in a Christian marriage, 
we're going to have our prayers hindered because we're not going to be together in our prayers. But also, there's a sense in which, guys, I want you to hear this. I want you women to hear this too. And I want married and single people to hear this because the principle applies. But guys especially right here because we're talking about husbands. If you go to God and you, and you pray about these areas of your life and you say, I'm looking for guidance, I'm looking for wisdom, I'm looking for insight, I'm looking for teaching, I want to know, God, what I should do. And if God hears that prayer and looks and says, now, wait a minute, I want you to know that I've already given you instruction on how you're to, to treat your wife, how you're to take care of your wife, how you're to serve and minister to your wife. And for crying out loud, I only did it in one verse. And you are having trouble following just that one verse. Why am I going to reveal my will to you in these other areas? If you're just going to start rejecting and cherry-picking my teaching in your life, why would I begin to reveal my will in other areas? It's very possible that that can happen. This idea of being in a relationship with God, it's interesting to me. When you're in relationship with someone, it demands the fact that there's going to be challenges and confrontation and that there's going to be people giving you input that you may not necessarily care for or agree with, right? Those of you in this room right now that you're married, okay, how many of you have a marriage where neither of you ever speak into each other's lives, never challenge each other, never confront one another? Anybody have a marriage like that? If you do, you're living in separate states and you're, and you're not talking through uh, phones or anything like that. I'm telling you, it doesn't happen. Yet we take this expectation and we apply it to God. We want to have a relationship with God just so long as he never challenges us or confronts us or speaks into our lives with a different opinion about how we might want to manage our lives. That's not a true relationship. If you ever read the book or saw the, the movie The Stepford Wives, you would understand why this is a problem. We can't conduct our relationships like this. And so our prayers are hindered in that way too. And by the way, wives, this applies to you too. If you're praying about things over here, but you're defying and rebelling against God over here, your prayers are going to be hindered. Singles, if you're, if you're praying about, oh, please help me figure this out over here, but you're clearly rejecting God's counsel over here, your prayers are going to be hindered. I want to close this section before I affirm once again this need of husbands to know and honor their wives. I want to, I want to kind of change gears for just a minute and, and mention the issue of abuse because every time we talk about husbands and wives every time we talk about marriage even if the text doesn't deal with it people want to come up with those questions and I understand that and those are legitimate questions and we should at least initiate the conversation so let me mention something about that so I want to talk a little bit about abuse first of all when it comes to abuse the first thing and, and I'm speaking from many years of, of counseling experience in this area. There's two things that we have to determine when it comes to abuse. Number one, we have to determine the type of abuse that may be going on because there's several different types, as many as six different types. But the second thing we have to determine is if abuse is actually taking place. Because we live in a culture now that likes to take terms and apply them pretty liberally to a lot of different activities. And so we need to understand that things like a difference of opinion, it's not abuse. 
that uh, there's an annoyed look on his face. It's not abuse. So we need to understand that. We need, we need to make sure that we're, we're getting out of the realm, when we talk about abuse, of just normal, everyday challenges and disagreements and struggles. And one of the challenges of labeling things abuse that are not abuse is that we tend to mock and cheapen the real counts of abuse in other people's lives. So we have to be very careful of that. I'm not saying that abuse doesn't take place. Believe me, it does more than it should, and it's tragic. I just want to make sure that we're on the same page when we talk about it. Now, if there is abuse in a marriage, and, and I will tell you, I, I heard this this morning, Pastor Frank, you do know that wives can abuse husbands too. Yeah, I got that. But primarily, again, from experience, it's husbands abusing wives. There, there are two things that wives need to know. Number one, we were told three weeks ago to submit to the human institutions, the kitsis, the Greek word is, the governing authorities. And, and, and we can submit to those in this case because the police department, the courts and the justice system, and the various agencies that deal with families and children, those are all kitsis. Those are all governing authorities in our lives, including the church, by the way. And so we can go to them, and we're called to submit to them. So we can do that. And second of all, here's the other thing I would just mention. Ladies, you need to know that distance is not a sin. Distance is not a sin. You're in a dangerous situation. Distance is not a sin. Some people would counsel against that. Let me say it another way. If you're threatened or you've been harmed already, you need to get out of there at least until your, your spouse has had a chance to repent and seek the help that is needed. Let me close with this. We need to realize and accept the reality that in marriage, roles are going to be different. And therefore, the, the form of service and ministry that spouses do to each other is going to be different. Peter says, wives, you need to submit to your own husband. And husbands, you need to know and honor your wives. In Ephesians 5, Paul says it this way. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands and respect them. And husbands, your role, your job, is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. In other words, husbands, you are to love your wife to death and not hers, yours. You're to die to self in your love for wife. I am to die to myself in my love for Jackie. And let me just say that this is the way that Christians exercise power. This is how Christians exercise power. We give up our rights we think of others first, and we seek to serve, not take. That's how we exercise power. And this is counterintuitive and countercultural, which means it's going to be hard and challenging and different. But again, I would encourage you, that's where the gospel comes in. That's where the power of Christ comes in. That's where the good news of Jesus and His Holy Spirit living inside of us comes in. That's where we access this power. Nobody has access to the power to be able to exercise power this way, giving up our rights and submitting to others, other than if Christ is living in you. That's the good news of the gospel. And not only that, but, but the power of the gospel also overcomes the one sin that is at the center and the root of all of our other sins, and that is selfishness and self-centeredness. 
Selfishness and self-centeredness. And I will tell you that selfishness and self-centeredness is the single biggest reason, greatest reason, why marriages have trouble. In fact, Tim Keller, in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, which I would highly recommend, he says it this way. The extent to which each spouse in a marriage recognizes that their own self-centeredness is the biggest obstacle to their marriage is the extent to which that marriage actually has a chance of being a great marriage. The extent to which each spouse can set aside their self-centeredness, that's the extent to which that, that marriage has a chance at being great. And there's only way, one way you can do that. That's by the power of Jesus living inside of you. So the Bible is really big on this issue, this one simple principle. You take care of your own sins and faults in your relationship with Jesus and don't spend a whole lot of time pointing out the faults of others. It's probably going to work well. And the reason you can do that is because Christ didn't spend a whole lot of time pointing out your faults, but instead he loved and sacrificed and graced and showed mercy to us instead. So think about it this way. Husbands and wives, you are to treat each other as Peter calls, not because you're necessarily going to get anything out of it, but because it's what Christ has already done for us. That's the gospel, and that is the hope that we have in our lives. Let me pray. Rob will come up and lead us into our time of reflection and response. Holy God, every time we open your word, we are challenged and confronted with a paradigm that seeks to change who we are, that seeks to inject the gospel into our lives, that seeks to explain how Jesus is going to help us to live our lives as you have called and purposed us to do that. But this is a challenge for us. We know that. It takes a transformation of our hearts. It takes a transformation of our minds. It takes a reorienting of our perspective. And so, God, I, I just pray that we would be able to do that, that you would give us the power and the strength and the courage to be able to do that. We pray this in your Son's name, and it's by him that we are given this power. Amen.